Greetings, this is Douglas Kimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge. I'm joined on the podcast today by Blake Haxton, the Energy and Transportation Analyst at Diamond Hill. Blake has been a guest on the podcast a couple of other times, and I'm glad he's able to join us once more, this time to address the pressing issue of the volatility in oil prices, impacts to the economy, and the impact of the Russia-Ukraine war on oil production and sales. Blake graduated from The Ohio State University with a degree in finance, but decided to keep going and get his JD from The Ohio State University as well. And to top it off, he was awarded his Chartered Financial Analyst designation in 2019. So we know he's a hard worker, but did you also know that he is a silver medal winning member of the US Paralympic team? Blake won the silver medal at the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, competing in the VAA single 200 meter VL2 event. For those like myself that don't know what VAA is, it is a traditional outrigger canoe originating in Polynesia that has a support on one side. I'll try to work in a question or two about his experience in the Paralympics, but Blake is here to discuss the oil market, and I'm looking forward to hearing his thoughts. As we continue to work through these unprecedented times, I ask for your understanding for any sound issues that may arise. As always, stay safe and stay healthy, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Blake Haxton. Blake, welcome back to the podcast. It's always a, a pleasure to have you on. Hey, Doug, thanks for having me back. Always good to be here. So let's get right into it, shall we? Obviously, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia created havoc in the energy sector with oil surging higher on the day of the incursion uh, and steadily climbing as, as combat has dragged on. But even before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, oil prices were moving higher since the beginning of the year. So let's talk about that surge in prices since the beginning of the year first. Uh, so beginning of the year to right before the invasion, as oil increased in price from you know, roughly $75 a barrel to nearly $92 a barrel. So was the increase due to growing tensions in Ukraine or was it something else? Yeah, it's a great question. And maybe I'll start with the caveat that it's always hard to pin down exactly what's driving the oil price and to what extent. But I think we can put our finger on some, some pretty clear trends. And if we back up to the fall a little bit, as we saw oil prices begin to rise, and maybe let's just go back to the, the end of, let's say, the Delta wave, which was sort of the last real, real dip in commodity prices as we came into the fall. Um, I think that's pretty well understood. Obviously, we thought, hey, we're, the vaccine count's going up, people are, demand is coming back, this is great. And then, of course, Delta hits and collapses demand again. Uh, as the fall progressed and Delta seemed to ebb, we, we slowly brought back demand. And two, two narratives came out of the supply side of, of the equation. The first was at oil prices above 65, 70, essentially every oil producer in the world is profitable enough that it's, it's worthwhile to produce more oil. So the question became, is there going to be more production or is there going to be discipline? And so there became an open question of, will they end up ramping production now that prices are back to a profitable level? The short answer is no, they haven't. The United States-based uh, producers have really been beaten up in their share price and by their investors to say, you know, all you've done is burn cash for the better part of a decade. We want to see some return before you're allowed to go drill more wells. And they have hung to that. They have really been pretty disciplined. And then on the OPEC plus side of the equation, even though they have gradually bought, brought back production at a agreed upon level, which was 400,000 barrels a day, the, the cartel has regularly underproduced over the last six months. And that raised a question of how much spare capacity or what ability they have to raise production after two years of obviously so much turmoil and things like that, how much spare capacity really is there in the market? 
And so we had restrained supply at the same time demand is coming back. Uh, we saw Omicron arrive, peak, and then begin to ebb, which to your point around since the beginning of the year, I think that's really contributed to some of the sentiment that was lifting oil prices. And then thinking back what feels like a year now, just the beginning of February, and we do see tensions start to rise in Russia and Ukraine. So anyway, all of those factors sort of combined to get us to the point where we were right before the incursion started. So now let's move over to, you know, the incursion and post-incursion, what we've seen. So, you know, Russian oil production, it comes from very remote areas of the country, well removed from Ukraine. And so the theory is that there isn't much concern about a lack of production uh, or damage to any kind of Russia's ability to produce oil. The major concern comes from ongoing sanctions against Russia, which covers everything from banks to oil refineries and military exports to sporting teams and events. So with Russia providing roughly 10% of the world's oil supply, how has the market reacted to this reduction in available supply due to this, uh, the ongoing sanctions? Yeah, and, and you really hit, hit the nail on the head. The question is, what is the ability to export the oil once it gets to, let's say, the border of Russia? And that is really the topical question of the day, because even though there haven't been to a large extent yet, uh, let's say, hard legal sanctions by most Western governments, there has been this de facto ban where a lot of the oil trading houses that actually do the hard work of picking up and delivering these cargoes of crude don't want to touch it. They're afraid it'll be sanctioned. They don't want to be perceived as supporting uh, Russia. So there's a lot of oil floating around out there, quite literally floating around out there that no one wants to claim. And we'll see what happens with that. My own view is I think some of it will find a home somewhere. There are plenty of places around the world that, um, you know, for better or worse, are willing to take uh, take cargoes like that and have over the last few years. But on the other hand, if the Western world doesn't want to be involved with the Russian export, then there's just going to be less supply. And that's one of the reasons we've seen the crude, uh, oil prices spike the way they have. And it's also something the market seems to be wrestling with and coming to terms with of just how long this supply is off the market. And in terms of duration, I would say that's a key factor here. If, if let's say there's a, a resolution to this in the next you know, few weeks or months, then perhaps we get back to sort of a normal 2021 type rate out of Russia relatively soon. Um, but if not, then these, and these barrels go off the market for a much longer period of time, then oil prices might have to rise even more to incentivize more supply to come online. You know, as you've mentioned, the surge in oil prices is the headline grabber uh, for most of the world, but the European Union relies heavily on Russia for natural gas. So specifically, uh, from what I've learned from you, the EU provides roughly 10% of its natural gas consumption domestically and relies on Russia for nearly 41% of its natural gas imports. What's happened to the natural gas market and is, has it been as volatile as what we've seen in oil? Yeah, it's, and, and it's a great question. I guess the, the, to set the stage here, I would say that one of the big differences between the oil and gas markets even though they often have similar producers and, and similar demand profiles, is it's not really a global market. It's primarily a regional market, just because gas being gas is a lot harder to store and transport than oil being a liquid is. So we're seeing a huge discrepancy between natural gas prices in Europe and natural gas prices in the United States, for example. And that's likely to persist. Now, it, you know, to, to touch on an earlier point you made, the infrastructure that carries the natural gas from Russia to Europe is still intact. As what we've seen, is it's still flowing. That, that product is still being provided despite prices being at all time, or perhaps not all time highs because of the volatility we've seen, but super 
certainly very high. We only we, we can only guess how high that price could go if some of that infrastructure were to be damaged. But back to your key point politically, the Europeans are absolutely reliant on Russian gas to uh, for any, any number of things. I mean, natural gas is a key feedstock of a, a wide array of in, industries, um, to say nothing of power generation and, and heating. So this is the key issue, as I'm sure you and I know, I'll bet a lot of our listeners have seen over the last few weeks, one of the key debates between NATO and NATO allied countries and Russia has been how, how much pain can we inflict on Russia to be, be a little you know, sharp elbowed about it without sacrificing our own energy needs. And that really is the heart of the debate right now. So each day, it seems like we're hearing about another company or two uh, refusing to do business with and or leaving Russia. And that ranges from Boeing to Nike to Harley-Davidson to Apple, McDonald's, Starbucks. But specific to your area of coverage, BP and Shell have begun liquidating their investments in joint projects in Russia. Uh, These companies are huge. But what kind of impact can something like this have on them longer term? It's a really interesting dynamic. Maybe we come at it from two, you know, two directions. At an asset level, of course, um, a lot of Western companies, particularly the European super majors, you might call them, have JVs or do participate in the Russian oil industry uh, to a great extent. BP, for example, has been in Russia since the fall of the Soviet Union. And the Russian industry has really needed their expertise. A lot of the oil and gas knowledge that is so important to, I mean, it's critical to, fun- to operate the industry comes from Western companies. And now that they are leaving, and we're not just seeing that from the Europeans, Exxon is, is, is leaving. Um, they had a, a fairly large project out in Eastern Siberia and they're just going home. Uh, we don't really know what kind of time frame and what kind of impact technologically and in terms of expertise that could have on the Russian industry. Um, can they operate on their own without without either Western knowledge or Western imports? Uh, the, the answer is is no, but we don't know exactly how long they can make it before that really starts to bite. So this is another longer term supply issue that should we see these, you know, these companies leave the, leave the state for, uh, you know, what could be and is beginning to look like quite some period of time, then the deterioration of the infrastructure could be such that even if there is a geopolitical resolution to the war, it could take quite some time to get those barrels back to the market. So this is something that I think uh, a, a lot of energy analysts are really paying a lot of attention to right now to try and figure out, okay, 12, you know, 24, 36 months down the line, what could this end up looking like? And that's interesting, the human capital aspect of it, if I'm understanding correctly. And it becomes, you know, a question of, you know, even once things, if they do, when they do settle down, will people even want to go back there to work? because of what's gone on? I, I think that's probably the question of the day. And I, you know, certainly at this point in time, all the focus is, as is appropriate is on the, the combat itself. But to your point, I think you're spot on. What does Russia look like after this is over? And this is, this is an area where I've, I've sort of spent a lot of time this week trying to figure it out is, I think the whole world is concerned what Ukraine looks like when this is over, um, win, lose, or draw. But we're going to have to have a discussion about what Russia looks like after this is over pretty soon. Um, and that could, you know, that could end up being a, a place where, to your point, no one wants to go. Um, do we've already seen flight on the part of Russian nationals that feel like they see the writing on the wall of the authoritarian bent that in direction Russia seems to be going in and don't want to be there anymore? 
uh, what impact does that have? Um, as you can tell, the second and third derivative of the invasion could end up being a Russian state that is less functional than it is now, and perhaps becomes an international pariah for some extended period of time. And if that were to happen, then there are a lot of international supply chains, particularly to the extent that they reach all the way back to commodities and uh, basic inputs, that are going to have to reorient themselves. So one thing that we've talked about on previous episodes when you've joined is, is the benefit of shale production and the ups and downs with the industry associated with fluctuations in oil prices. How was this industry positioned heading into 2022? And can it take advantage of the recent spike in oil prices to bring more rigs and production online? Financially, the industry is, is in really great shape. You know, we, we saw after the downturn, a lot of M&A, uh, frankly, a lot of bankruptcy from weaker producers. And that, you know, those assets don't go away. They just get reorganized and end up, end up ending up in the hands of viable entities, which is really what we're seeing now. Um, the industry is generating in tremendous amounts of cash at these commodity levels. So from a, from a basic bottoms-up financial perspective, these businesses are doing very, very well. To your point around, can they increase production from here? There are two sides to that. First is, as we touched on earlier with capital discipline, are shareholders and lenders going to provide them the capital to increase production? Now, the answer has been basically that the open market has been closed to oil companies uh, for all intents and purposes for quite some time, just because there's a lack of investor interest. They've burned cash for a very long time. They've had terrible returns. They just haven't had any interest. Now they're generating enough cash that they can fund their own drilling programs. That's really not the concern anymore. However, these management teams have been so penalized for production over cash flow back to shareholders that they are still very hesitant to increase their production um, in what is still a very volatile and very uncertain oil price environment. So there's the cash is there, but is there willingness? And as of yet, there doesn't seem to be on the part of management teams. Now, the other piece of this is not just financial, but operational in the sense of just how quickly can we get drill bits in the ground to increase production if we ran as hard as we could. Uh, the supply chain problems that you, know, you and I discussed, I think in our last conversation, are impacting the oil field just like they're impacting everywhere else. Um, there's certainly inflation and costs there as well. And there's also shortages of labor there. So you know, coming out of this extreme downward shock that, that really washed out a lot of the industry, do, how quick are we to get labor back that is willing to go through that again? Um, and the answer is we're not. It's very, very tight. Now, how long could that last for? Is that a three-month problem? Is that six months? Is it a year? Um, I think it could be a 12 to 24-month issue. You know, if the if, certainly with oil above $110 a barrel, just about every drilling project looks profitable today. And eventually, if history is any guide, those rigs will get stood up and that production will come online. Uh, but we're going to have to get over a pretty high hurdle rate here in the short term. So all it is to say, we can't, this is not a, shale is not a six week or three month resolution to the, the Russian oil crisis and to put some context around it. You know, as you said, Russia produces uh, about 10 million barrels a day of oil um, all out. And uh, uh, the majority of that's exported depending on exactly which product you look at. And the United States, the EIA came out and is projecting that the United States is going to increase US production about 1 million barrels a day from 2021 to the end of 2022. That's just a forecast, it's a guess. Maybe it's 1.3, maybe it's 700,000, who knows? But 
it's still you can tell that's that's not enough to close the gap in a year certainly so these are the kind of things that like we say the longer this conflict drags on the more pressing this question could be and the supply and demand mismatch could 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 get even more severe i want to end on a high note we've discussed some pretty bleak <laughs> things on this podcast uh, but so since i've got you on here uh, back in early September, you were in Tokyo representing the United States in the slightly oh, delayed man. 2020 Paralympics. Uh, my whole family was watching as you surged from behind to claim <laughs> the silver medal in an electrifying race. Uh, your story is amazing. And, and I'd encourage anyone interested to check out your TED Talk at OSU that's on YouTube. But you know, what can you tell me about the experience in Tokyo, not just competing in your second Paralympics, but the overall environment itself? Thank you very much for the kind words and uh i can also tell you the the support was was uh greatly felt and greatly appreciated as well um you know the experience you know the experience was certainly a, a different one uh from 2016 the the atmosphere was a lot different because covid was um obviously dominating the environment so I spent a lot of time sitting in my room on my uh, on my computer in the village but uh <laughs> but i mean it I guess a couple things that I'll, will always stick with me, maybe if I had to pick was the hospitality of the Japanese people to host the games at all in that environment. And then to treat us the way they did was just, just amazing. And, you know, at the end of the day, anytime, anytime you get to compete on behalf of the United States and, and represent USA, then, you know, that's just a privilege that I have a hard time putting into words every single time it's a mountaintop experience and hopefully I'll get to do it again at some point, but, um, thanks for uh, thanks for mentioning it, and uh, again, the support was much appreciated. Yeah, of course, it was uh, it was it was fun to watch. Probably not very much fun to train, but definitely on our side, <laughs> watching was great. Um, Blake Haxton, energy analyst, silver medal winner. Thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Uh, your insights were fantastic. Hey, Doug, thanks for having me. As always, this material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.